Hello, I'm James Hurst and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, an effective amnesty in Northern Ireland, but how do we all move on from the crimes of the past? There ought to be proper investigations, there ought to be proper prosecutions. Will conflicts of the future be beyond humans? Even the best human operator cannot defend against multiple machines making thousands of manoeuvres per second at hypersonic speeds. And the military mindset which helped Gareth Southgate push England to the brink of glory. Gareth is leading and representing his country. It's not dissimilar to the kind of um, experiences that myself and colleagues have found being in the military. It is 23 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, nearly a quarter of a century. And in that time, politicians have struggled with how best to deal with the legacy of Northern Ireland's conflict. Now, the government has chosen its path to put the whole thing into the past. Ministers have formally proposed a statute of limitations that would halt both investigations and prosecutions linked to the violence in Northern Ireland prior to 1998. It is, the Prime Minister says, the only way forward. The sad fact remains that there are many members of the armed services who continue to face the threat of vexatious uh, prosecutions uh, well into their uh, 70s and 80s and later. And we are finally, Mr Speaker, bringing forward a solution to this problem, to enable the province of Northern Ireland to draw a line under the troubles, to enable the people of Northern Ireland to move forward. But Labour opposes the plan, as do all five of Northern Ireland's main parties. Opposition leader Sir Keir Starmer. A blanket amnesty, including for terrorists, is plain wrong. I was in Northern Ireland last week, and it's absolutely clear that the government's amnesty is not supported by the political parties in Northern Ireland, and it's not supported by victims groups. It is also not supported by some veterans groups, but former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, can't see any other way. This isn't the solution to everyone's problems. I've called it the least worst solution. But it does provide a mechanism whereby investigations can continue, questioning can continue, so that families who lost loved ones during the Troubles get to know what happened, but without the fear of prosecution being held above the heads of military veterans. But can you put the crimes of a decades-long conflict in which three and a half thousand people died, can you put those crimes into the past if many of them go unpunished? Roman Gormigan is a senior research fellow at the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law. It's very worrying from a couple of different perspectives. The, the most troubling one is the most obvious one, which is that it makes it impossible to prosecute people who've committed a crime and not just people who've committed any crime people who've committed serious crimes in northern ireland it's not just that there will not be a ban on a prosecution there will also be a ban on investigating troubles related events in northern ireland and that is hugely problematic for all the people who have suffered um, in northern ireland over the the troubles because there will be no investigation of those crimes is it an amnesty? It's called a statute of limitations. And a statute of limitations simply means after a certain period of time, there's no prosecution. In effect, though, it is an amnesty. I mean, I, I wouldn't be particularly worried about um, if it's called an amnesty or not called an amnesty. In effect, it means that there will be no investigation of crimes. 
the government's argument is those investigations that are going on now are not really providing justice or comfort. There is a, clearly a problem with the current uh, prosecutions. These events took place a very long time ago. It's very hard to get the evidence, the information, but also the, the practice procedure, the history behind it makes it really hard to find out. And in some ways, it's the, the state's own fault that it's really hard to make these prosecutions because they weren't investigated properly at the time. But does that not mean reality is a statute of limitations evolves naturally anyway if, if you cannot prosecute realistically after a certain length of time? There ought to be proper investigations. There ought to be proper prosecutions. The fact that those haven't really been occurring so far well, that shouldn't be a reason to give up and say, well, we're not going to bother. The Enniskillen massacre on, on uh, Remembrance Sunday back in 1987, and 11 civilians were blown up by the IRA. This law says that no one can be prosecuted for that and no one can even be investigated for that. That's quite an appalling thing for those families, those victims. Then if you look at coming right up to what happened last month, the Bally Murphy massacre, when soldiers were found to have unlawfully killed civilians in Belfast in the 1970s. This law says no one will ever be prosecuted for that, and that will not even be investigated by the police. And that's an appalling thing for those family members to hear. Dr. Raymond Cormacain, well, with us once again, Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Mike, it does seem the government is alone in supporting this plan at this time. Do you think this could become a reality? Uh, well, it might, and that's obviously what the government is hoping for, but they've united everybody against this. Uh, so the DUP have come out against it, Sinn Féin have come out against it, the opposition in Westminster have, the Irish government has, and I think there'll be a lot of Conservatives on the back benches who'll feel very uh, wary about this because, as everyone says, the, this is an amnesty both for the, the troops involved, which is very popular in the Conservative backbenches, but also for the terrorists. And there are, you know, there's over a thousand cases which are still on the books of the Northern Ireland Police Service. And the idea that you can draw a line in 1998 and everything before that is now amnestied, it is politically, in a sense, it's politically desirable to do that. That's what the South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission was all about. Draw a line and move on. We all, we all understand that. But there's a lot of opposition to this, and I suspect the government will have a real problem. They'll publish the bill, uh, the bill will be criticised, they will probably get it through Parliament, but it'll be subject to legal challenge at every step of the way. I think it's going to be a very, very hard road to make this a reality. As you say, it, it would apply across the board, but how important is it that this question of legacy investigations and prosecutions is addressed and put into the past. If you're fighting against terrorists, then it's very, very important that the, that the government maintains the moral high ground that is held to a higher standard, that you do things entirely within the law. And all through the Northern Ireland troubles, the British government's attitude was, look, we are dealing with criminality here. We'll treat these people as criminals. We will not give them the, the dignity of saying they're political actors, still less soldiers operating in battalions, as they, they call themselves, battalions and, and brigades in the IRA. 
IRA. And Britain wouldn't accept any of that because they said, you know, we're, we're dealing with criminals. And what the, the terrorists always assume, what they hope for, is that, yes, you call us terrorists now, but eventually you will call us political prisoners. You'll give us political status and then there will be an amnesty because you'll accept that we had a political point. And once you start to give on that, then you've given away a lot of the moral high ground in the future. It's very important. You know, Britain talks about upholding a rules-based international order all the time. But if we are prepared now to drive a coach and horses through the law in order to settle this historical problem, then it actually weakens our moral case for everything else that the British government wants to do and that the British military want to do. So it's a no-win situation. And this government's got too poor a record at the moment on not respecting the law to give itself another petty crime tag. I mean, I have to say that we, we have an awful lot of previous in this government. They break the law or threaten to break the law far too often for uh, some of us. This is Sitrep. We have talked a lot on Sitrep about the grey zone, areas below the traditional thresholds of conflict, where skirmishes between nations and non-state actors are increasingly common. The most high-profile example, cyber attacks. But could these future confrontations soon be beyond the capabilities of humans? The Ministry of Defence is spending billions of pounds on research into future military technologies and as Paul Osborne reports, it is already having real-world effects. AI, artificial intelligence, science fiction for decades, but now a fact. The Army recently used AI for the first time on operations, helping to analyse vast amounts of environmental data in Estonia. And this is just the beginning, according to General Sir Patrick Sanders, Commander of Strategic Command. Why does it matter to defence? Well, as Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, testified to Congress recently, defending against AI-capable adversaries without employing AI is an invitation to disaster. At a recent conference, he said AI would fundamentally change the nature of conflict. Human operators will not be able to defend against AI-enabled cyber or disinformation attacks, drone swarms, or missile attacks without the assistance of AI-enabled machines. Even the best human operator cannot defend against multiple machines making thousands of maneuvers per second at hypersonic speeds and orchestrated by AI across domains. In other words, if your potential enemies are using AI, you'd better be using it too. The alternative doesn't bear thinking about, according to Michael O'Hanlon from the Brookings Institution. If AI allows more effective cyber attack, because you're constantly probing as to where, you know, the adversaries' networks have their vulnerabilities and then trying to adjust your own attack accordingly. And you can automate that so that it happens even faster than before. Then it's possible that the other side can bring down your computer systems using an AI, you know, facilitated cyber attack. My number one concern is our vulnerability, not our lethality. So who's winning the cyber race right now? You might think Russia or China, but not according to Dr. Greg Austin, co-author of a report into cyber power for the International Institute for Strategic Studies. We were able to demonstrate quite a clear gap, a visible gap between China and the United States uh, in almost every aspect of cyber power. And while I'd thought for a long time that uh, China was lagging behind the United States in broad terms. 
I was actually surprised to see how comprehensive that lagging was. So we were able in this report to draw a clear distinction between China's cyber power and that of the United States. Britain doesn't want to be left out and the MOD is planning to spend more than £6.5 billion over the next four years researching emerging technologies. And it doesn't end with AI. The next step could be far, far bigger. We are seeing a huge uh, developments in quantum computing. That's NATO chief scientist Dr Brian Wells. Now quantum computing is where things get really complicated. A normal computer, be it a laptop or an iPhone, is basically a complex calculator. All the information is stored in bits, noughts and ones, every one of them either on or off. But a quantum computer can hold information in many more states. It holds out the prospect of a new generation of computers, able to do things that today's machines could never do. But getting there will take time. But before we get to a, a properly working quantum computer, my judgment personally is that we will see other impacts of quantum technology, not least uh, in quantum sensing um, and in precision navigation time, for example. Those will come, in my judgment, um, over the next decade or so, but a truly functioning quantum computer, as the experts would uh, recognise that, that is uh, some way off into the future. So it won't be here tomorrow, but Brian Wells says if you put the advances in computing together with AI, the possibilities are enormous. Medical, for example, the possibility of having very rapid medical diagnostics for battlefield injuries. So the combination of computers, artificial intelligence and big data really will um, map out a very significant transformation of all aspects of uh, military operations. It's why Britain says it wants to invest heavily in emerging technologies, always aware that potential adversaries are doing exactly the same thing. Paul Osborne reporting. Now, one thing that unites all that new technology, at least until we get to quantum computers, is the need for semiconductor chips. Lots of them. So now really isn't a good time for a global chip shortage. It has slowed the production of everything from cars to microwaves, but it's also a huge headache for militaries as they look to a future massively reliant on technology. The US has called the shortage of semiconductors a national security crisis. The UK is being affected as well. Let's bring back in Professor Michael Clark. I mean, the shortage of chips has a number of factors. It partly started with the trade war between the, the Trump White House and China, but it has got worse because of, of demand during the pandemic. So many more people using consumer technology. I think people would be a bit surprised at just how dependent all of the devices are on uh, chips. This is a, an 85 billion a year trade in, in chips. The vast majority, about 65% of them, are made in Taiwan. China actually only makes less than 10%, about 8% of the chips. So there's a massive, massive supply chain vulnerability because there just aren't enough producers. We used to produce them ourselves. I mean, we used to produce them, but years ago, because they could be produced more cheaply elsewhere, we said, oh, fine, it's more efficient to have them produced elsewhere. And the world has just woken up to the fact that we're all dependent on these things and only three countries, thankfully two of them in the Western orbit, actually produce them. 
Why has it taken so long to wake up to this issue? Partly this is a COVID thing. We, we've realised just how vulnerable all our supply chains are. And it doesn't just go for computer chips. It, it, you know, it applies in fuel and raw materials and so on. In a way, we, we've allowed ourselves over the last 20, 25 years to think that cheapness and the economy of it is the fundamental factor. And I think we've all woken up to the fact that if we want to be more resilient in our societies, we've got to be prepared to pay more for components that we know we can we can successfully source. And of course, this is adding to the questions about the potential sale of the UK's largest chip manufacturing plant, Newport Wafer Fab, and the possibility it is going to be sold to a Chinese-backed company. Based in Tradiga. It's a very small company, but a very good one. And the, the, the takeover deal is about 60-odd million i think it's 62 63 million so it's tiny 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 compared to the market of 85 billion the company wants to be taken over it wants the investment but for the sake of 60 odd million investment we might now lose our ability to really influence this production center uh, of chips so where we are now is that stephen lovegrove who's the national security advisor is being asked to look at the deal and the government will, doesn't yet have, but will have the power eventually with this um, uh, Investment Act, the National Security Investment Bill, when it becomes an act, to prevent it happening. And we'll see if, that, if that's the outcome sometime in the autumn, I imagine. Mike, thank you. Now, as the government prepares to abandon remaining coronavirus restrictions in England next week, we have had a reminder of the threat that the virus still poses. More than 100 crew members of the Royal Navy's carrier strike group have been infected with the virus. That is despite the crew all being double vaccinated. The outbreak came after a stopover in Cyprus where the captain of the American destroyer, which is in the carrier strike group, told us that his crew are ready for anything. Before news of the outbreak emerged, Sean Grezchek spoke to the captains of both HMS Queen Elizabeth and of the US destroyer USS The Sullivans. The tempo's been very high indeed, um, but that's what we wish for. Captain Angus Essenhai is commanding officer of HMS Queen Elizabeth. We're blessed to have 18 jets and 10 helicopters on board at the moment. Um, they've been working the deck 24-7, absolutely flat out, delivering missions into northern Iraq at the behest of the Iraqi government. So we're, we're very pleased with the way the mission's gone. But this is uh, what we deem to be an initial operational deployment. Uh, so we're, we're learning uh, as we go, um, but I'm really pleased to report it's been highly successful, very challenging, um, but uh, nonetheless rewarding. Obviously, you've caught the uh, attention of the Russians. We've seen what's happened with HMS Defender. What are you expecting as you continue on? So the Eastern Mediterranean is obviously populated by a number of navies, um, but this is a, a modern, super relevant capability that lots of people will want to come and have a look at. Uh, we can imagine that as we keep, keep progressing towards the east, other navies will want to come and, and have a look at us as well, but um, that's fully expected and, and within normal patterns of life. So what's it like commanding the Navy's flagship on a historic deployment such as this? It's a real privilege, but there is a weight of expectation that you get this right. Uh, it's £3.4 billion worth of taxpayers' money. You can't afford to crash it, you don't want an incident, uh, and you owe it to all the families and friends of those sailors you have under your command to bring them home safe and sound. So uh, you can't allow it to keep you awake at night because you need to sleep, but um, it'll be something that if I, if I do get it right, I'll reflect on fondly when I, when I eventually come to leave the ship. American destroyer USS The Sullivans is a key part of the carrier strike group. Its captain is Commander David Burkett. The last couple of weeks have been high tempo, and I would say in a particular way, they've highlighted it's the first time that uh, US airplanes have flown off a foreign warship into combat uh, and for I know our Marines over on Queen Elizabeth how proud they are of that 
and we support that. And in terms of protecting the carrier and all of the attention uh, that it's, it's been getting, a lot of Russian attention, uh, we've seen what's happened with HMS Defender. How much more attention are you expecting? I don't know that I have any expectations. It makes sense for people to pay attention. And that just gets back to the historic nature of the deployment. It's something that uh, we haven't done in my career. It is the first time for something. It's the first time that Queen Elizabeth has deployed. Uh, I think it's the first time in at least a decade a U.S. Navy ship has deployed with a British strike group. Um, and I think it's something worthy of people's attention. How concerning is it when you know, you're sort of hearing about you know, Russians using hypersonic missiles? We're ready for anything. Uh, and I, I don't want to speak too specifically to any particular threat. We spend a lot of our time training and we spend training for every, time training for everything. So is there something in particular I'm worried about or not? Not in particular. Uh, I have confidence in this crew and I have confidence in the training that we get to be able to handle any situation. Why is an operation like this necessary? Well, I think the broader question is why is the Navy necessary? All of us are really acutely aware, particularly those that work at sea, uh, how much of our global commerce is on the oceans, uh, how much sea lines of communication are important, uh, how important it is to have a free sea, uh, an open sea. So, you know, our Navy is important, yes, they are, and I've dedicated my life to that. And I've dedicated my life to the principles that navies are important and what we do is important. And this is just another reflection and I'm so proud to take part of it with the Queen Elizabeth. Was there a moment where you thought, is it worth postponing this historic uh, deployment because of the global pandemic? There was never a moment. I think a lot about COVID and I think a lot about how it impacts every single person on the ship. And I think a lot about service. And we're all here to serve. You don't ask for the challenges that come your way. And it is our job to overcome those challenges. And they may not be what we ask for and they may not be what we want, but that's our job. And there was never a thought of postponing. There was only the thought, how do we make this work? And how do we make this work as effectively as we possibly can with what we have? David Paquette, commanding officer of USS The Sullivans, talking to Sean Greszczyk. Finally today, and at the risk of reviving some painful memories, let's return to last Sunday night and a heartbreaking moment at Wembley. Saka is already waiting. It's not a long run-up. It's a left-footed penalty. Here he comes. Oh, he saved it! Donnarumma saves! England missed three consecutive penalties in the shootout. It's poor Bukayo Saka who misses the crucial one. And England, Gareth Southgate's England, losing a penalty shootout in the final. What a twist. What a terrible twist for England. We heal together as a team now and uh, we're there for them. And uh, I know that 99% of the public will be as well because they will appreciate how well they've played. The lads, they've made history. They brought our country together in times they need. Southgate applauded him, he's done a great job. Proud of the boys. We've shown the power our country has when it does come together and has that energy and positivity together. We felt that from the fans. I'm incredibly proud of the players. Gareth Southgate praising his England players after they came agonisingly short of victory in the Euro 2020 final. But under Southgate's leadership, England came fourth at the 2018 World Cup, third in the Nations League and now second at the Euros. Next year, they get a chance to go one better in Qatar. It is five years since Southgate became England manager, and when he did, the Football Association assembled a panel from outside the sport to work with him on improving performance. Among the members of that technical advisory board, 
Colonel Lucy Giles, Sandhurst's first female commander. To be invited to be part of some of the FA's initiatives and to offer some advice on a range of subjects, including the approach to the Euros with Gareth, was an enormous um, privilege. It can be a bit overwhelming, but once you get over that, just normal people that are wanting to do best for their country, and that's genuinely what motivates Gareth Southgate. Are there elements of the military mindset that you are seeing applied in this squad and, and saw at work in the Euros? I think there is some overlap with in terms of the approach we have to planning and execution of the plan um, under a little bit of pressure. I think there is definitely a read across to the approach that the FA and of course Gareth would take with, uh, with his, his team of coaches as well as the players. One of the things that we do well in the military is we are quite inclusive. We, we will bring together all the elements of, of what we need to prosecute a campaign. And I think that that's one of the things that they are pretty good at doing in the footballing world. It is something that has stood out at the Euros, the team spirit. And that seems to be not just about on the pitch, but everything off the pitch in, in, in terms of working together, presenting as one. Well, absolutely. Their skills are a given. They're top of their game in terms of skills and, and performance in that way. But it's the mental journey that you have and, and being able to trust and work with other people in the team. And, and it's the same for the military. We, we do uh, task orging, don't we? And uh, so we have people that will come to us from other units and they've got to fit in straight away and hit the, the ground running. Um, and, and be able to, to work in that sort of uh, uh, tight-knit group. So there, there is definitely a read across. The resilience of the team has been quite sorely tested this week because of the, the, the racist abuse, hasn't it? Most definitely. And it's a shame that there is a minority in our country that still think it's OK to, to um, behave in that way. I don't think anybody condones it that's... That, you know, and I should think in the cold light of day for some of those individuals, they very much regret their behaviours and what they're doing. Do you think that team spirit, though, has, has actually helped everybody, whether targeted or not, to come through together? Absolutely. The open letter that Gareth wrote last week, I think it was, to explain why the team had collectively decided, not individuals within it, the whole team had decided on an approach to support each other and to recognise an issue that that is prevalent, unfortunately, in, in aspects of our society and, and in football, to, to, to make a stand, because they knew they had the platform to do that. That respect for others, again, a key value in our, in our military, is um, in Jaws in the game. The open letter he wrote was very powerful. What's been your experience of working alongside Gareth Southgate? What, what, what is the man like? It's not just about Gareth, it's about the whole of the FA's Football Association's approach to not just, say, the Euros, but about women, the women's game, grassroots, culture, organisational change, all of those sort of areas. And what's brilliant is that the organisation is open to listening to other viewpoints and perspectives. When you're going in a room and you're listening, looking at somebody, for anybody that's there with their notepad open, their ears open, and, and, and are innately curious and really want to know why and, and, and be challenged, I think it's, it's fantastic to work um, with somebody like that. And Gareth epitomises it. And Gareth Southgate has spoken of his affinity for the military, his grandfather's service in, in the Second World War. It, it, 
representing his country is clearly very important to him, isn't it? It is. And, and when we did our, our first sort of introductions as to what we value, we may be able to add. Um, the, my, my, my final point in my little intro is that, you know, it was quite simple, really. Gareth is leading and, and representing his country and, and stressful situations in the public eye. It's not dissimilar to the kind of um, experiences that myself and colleagues have found being in the military. We're putting the uniform on to serve Her Majesty the Queen and our country overseas and on the mainland. We, we're very pleased to, and honoured to be able to do that as he is. If it's not too painful, just cast your mind back to, to Sunday night. Having, having worked with, with Gareth Southgate and the FA, how did it feel watching that match and the final result? Well, the first three minutes were brilliant. You know, it was an amazing atmosphere and um, fantastic. And of course, it got down to literally the last, you know, you know, two hours later, you know, you were sitting there biting your nails. Everything just felt flat and all that emotional investment had just gone. I mean, I wouldn't be alone in, in observing that. And, and I think the big lesson here, though, is, is how you recover from that. Actually, you know, it's not just the team, it's the country. And what lessons can we take? So yeah, it was it was it was gutting. <laughs> it's really gutting. The reassurances that the building blocks are there for the team, and I think seventeen months time uh, at the Worlds in Qatar in November next year, I think we'll we'll hopefully see a different result. Colonel Lucy Giles from the Football Association's Technical Advisory Board on the pain of that moment when football just missed the last bus home. Well, that is all for Sit Rep this week. Thanks to Professor Michael Clark and indeed all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter until we're back next week. Uh, we are at BFBS Sit Rep on Twitter and we're at bfbs.com slash sitrep where you can listen back to past programmes and also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.